unpack today, so we're going to dive in pretty quick. So uh, as you find your seats, we're going to pray together uh, before we dive into the word this morning. All right, Jesus, this morning, Father, we just invite you into this space. We invite you into this space because you are the Lord of all. You are the, you say in your word that all authority on heaven and on earth is given to you. And today, we want to we learn what that looks like. Uh, Lord, we, we want you to be, we, we want you to save our lives, Lord, but you also are the Lord of our lives. And so today, Jesus, I pray that, that we would make you both. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Um, and, th- and that today, we would learn what it means to follow you and to live life with you as our king. Uh, so, Holy Spirit, uh, Lord, would you soften our hearts? Uh, would you open our ears uh, to what you want to say uh, to us this morning? Uh, and Lord, we love you and we thank you. You make all this possible. It's your name we pray. Everybody said. Yeah. All right. So we are a handful of weeks into this kind of final act of Romans. And after today, after today, there's only four weeks left, right? So it's the final countdown. You can cue the music, right? Over the next few weeks, that's kind of what it's going to look like. Um, and here's, what, here's the deal. The, these, these last few chapters, this last final act in Romans asks and answers one question, and it's this. What does the Christian life look like? That's really the one question that we're going to be unpacking, and we've been unpacking over the last few weeks, is what does the Christian life look like? How do we live this Christian life? And here, here's what I'm going to say this morning, okay? What we're going to talk about today, all right, what we're going to unpack together today, there are probably, and I would guess, uh, as many people as there are in the room, there are that many strong opinions about what we're going to talk about today. So what I'm asking for you to do is this, do not tune out. Do not tune out, do not go into your, like, don't shut down, um, don't, last time, last time I said don't power down, don't, this time, don't power up, right? Stay in your seats, right, until we get to the end, and, and then afterwards, if you want to email me, you can email me at justinb@adventureky.org. okay? Um, so like I said, we've, <laughs> um, we've been, we've been kind of digging into this, this question of what does the Christian life look like. And my, my friend Jim Bergen says this. He says that, that when we talk about what does a Christian life look like and why how we live, why how we live matters so much, he says this. You and I, we were created, we exist to be an incarnational, which means in the flesh, living and breathing expression of the character and nature of God. So we ask that question, what does a Christian life look like? And when we start to think, like, why does the way I live as a Christian in this world, why does it matter? This is why. This is why it matters. We exist. We were created to be an incarnational, living, breathing, with skin on expression of the character and nature of God. Our lives as believers in Jesus operate on an entirely different frequency. Our lives operate on a completely different rhythm and wavelength because we have a relationship with God through the gospel, right? That's why. Our lives look different Because we have a relationship with God through the gospel of Christ, that's why our lives look different. But while we operate on this different frequency and wavelength, we also broadcast that frequency and wavelength for others to see, others to hear, others to feel, and others to experience. Which is why we say, and we've been saying this for the last few weeks, when it comes to sharing the gospel and how we share the gospel, we do that in two ways. We share the gospel with our lives, the way we live. And we share the gospel with our lips, our stories, our testimonies of those moments when our lives bumped into Jesus and how Jesus changes everything. And so just to kind of sum this up, okay, I would, I would just say this, that what we've unpacked in the last few weeks boils down to these things. The Christian life looks different because of our relationship with God through the grace and mercy, like through the grace and mercy, and that changes our relationship with ourselves, 
we begin to see ourselves different. Like we talked about at the beginning of Romans 12, we see ourselves no longer as living for ourselves, but as living sacrifices, right, with renewed minds. So we have that living sacrifice, a renewed mind, a renewed heart, and we have that healed view of self. We no longer see ourselves as greater than we ought to, but we see ourselves as a part of a body, right? So this this life looks different because our relationship with God, it changes how we see ourselves. It changes our relationship with the church. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that we're one body, we're unique, we're different. But we've been empowered spiritually to serve one another and to serve this body and to serve others. So it changes our relationship with the church. Church is not a spectator sport. This is not something that we come in and we sit passively and just sit and watch. This is something that you are to be involved in. This Christian life looks different because our relationship with people are different. Justin talked about this last week. Talked about it's not easy to begin to love people that hate you and to pray for people that persecute you and feed your enemy, right? If your enemy is hungry, give them food. Like, that's not an easy thing to do. But because this Christian life looks different because of the grace and mercy we receive from Jesus, it changes our relationship with people. And today, what we're going to talk about is how the Christian life looks different because of grace and mercy, it changes our relationship with the world around us and with culture. So if you've got your Bibles in front of you, your Bible app, go ahead and open that up to Romans chapter 13. We're going to be verse 1. If you need a Bible, if you do not have a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back. You can have them, right? You can take one with you. You can grab it today. It's yours. You can keep it. So here's what it says. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says this. This is why I said, soft hearts, stay in your seats. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against that authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So when we talk about how to live a Christian life, it's, it's not about just staying in our holy huddles and our Christian bubbles. We have to interact with the culture and world around us, and we have to know how to do that. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. And so you might read these first few verses, these first couple of verses, and go, time out. What, is, what did Paul just say? Like, what is he talking about here? You mean, you mean to tell me that living the Christian life means that I have to take a look at, that I have to reevaluate, that I may have to shift or change how I live under and deal with the government? Somebody chuckled. <laughs> yes. To the, yes, it does, Right? It, we have to look at that. We have to look at how we do it. When it comes to the government and the powers and authorities on earth, we have to look at that. Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. Now, I need to get this out up front, right, because I know what some of you are thinking right now, all right, maybe a lot of us in the room, myself included. There is a clear threshold up to which we submit and obey, right? But I, wanna, I want us to understand there is a threshold, there is a line up to which we submit and obey, and we do not cross that line, right? But I want to be clear from the start, Right? When we talk about government and governing authorities, here's one thing that is true. The one thing that we come back to, Jesus is king. Jesus is in charge. Right? So what Jesus says to do supersedes any form of humanity's government or law. Right? That is the truth. That's real. And so you might be thinking, well, if that's the truth and that's real, then Brad, why do we have to talk about this? Why do we have to unpack this? Can we just skip this chapter, please? Right? Well, first off, the reason we have to talk about it is because the Bible talks about it. And as a church at Adventure, we're going to talk about what the Bible talks about. We're going to talk about the truth that the Bible talks about, and we're not going to hold that back. We're not going to soften that. We want to make sure we tell the truth even when the truth is hard to tell. Second reason we have to talk about it is because it comes back to sharing the gospel, right? It shares, it, it's all about sharing the gospel with our lives and with our lips. And so how we live matters. 
how we interact with governing authorities, it matters. And last, it's this. It's because the institution and the, the institution of government, the act of governing, and the position of governors and the whole concept of governance was God's idea. That's why we have to talk about it. We're not talking about something that founding fathers decided to come up with. We're not talking about something that empires and kings decided to come up with. We're talking about something that ultimately, at the end of the day, was God's idea. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, in the very beginning, first page of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, when God creates mankind, and mankind is people, it's men and women, he says this, God says, let us make mankind in our image. Let us make mankind in our likeness so that they may, what, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. At the very beginning of this, I need us to see one really critical detail. God is the source of all power, all rule, and all authority. But in creation... He gave humanity, men and women, the ability to reflect, to be an expression of his power, rule, and authority through delegation. God delegated his power, rule, and authority to men and women, to mankind. Now, here's what I need you to understand. The only absolute authority is God's authority. That is the truth. The only absolute authority in our world, in our universe, is God's authority. And we, mankind, only has authority because he gives us the ability to have it and he allows us to have it. That's the only reason we have it. So if you're, if you're taking notes or if you want to just grab a picture, that's kind of how we take notes here sometimes. If you just take a picture of the screen, take a picture of this, okay? God's authority is absolute. It's the only authority that's absolute. Any other authority than God's is delegated authority. It's delegated authority and it operates entirely under him and as he permits it. That's the truth, okay? Which is why Paul says the authorities in these first few verses, the authorities that exist have been established by God and none exist that are not established by him. So before sin entered the picture, as we look at this creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, before sin entered the picture, God said that it was very good for us, mankind, men and women, to be a reflection, to be an image, to be an expression of his delegated power, rule, and authority. So... That when all of creation looked at people and how we ruled, they would see not just us, but they would see the image, the expression, and the reflection of God and how he rules. Now, here's what we know. Sin entered the picture, right? Sin entered in the picture, and when that happened, it distorted the image of God in us which means that it also distorts how we image and how we express the character and nature of God in all that we do, including how we exercise our power, our rule, and authority over people. And we're going to talk more about what that looks like here in a minute and what to do with that here in a minute. What do we do? What do we do as believers in Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what do we do when we live under a government or under people that have a fallen, distorted image of God in them? And because of that, how they rule and exercise that authority is also, what do we do with that? What do we do with distorted authority? But before we go on and before we get to that, I need us to understand that what Paul is referring to when he talks about government, government, government and governing authorities, here's what he's not doing. He's not endorsing any particular form of government. He's not endorsing democracy. 
He's not saying that this is the greatest thing ever. Winston Churchill has a great quote about democracy. He says, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Right? Think about that for a second. Democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. He's not endorsing that, right? Paul is not endorsing any type of political party. He's not endorsing a a specific politician. Here's what Paul is doing. He is pointing to and he is endorsing the concept and institution of government and governing authorities that are ultimately God's idea. Which is why Paul says, when you rebel against the institution of government and governing authorities, what you're really doing is you're rebelling against something that God created and set up. And when you do that, you're only bringing judgment down on yourself. Which is why when you claim, when you and I claim in our pride and in our arrogance, right, which is what it is, when I claim that no one or no thing will be in charge of me, No one gets to tell me how to live my life. I will do what I want. When we claim that, when we claim that there can be or will be no one in charge of us, what you're doing is you're trying to make yourself, I'm trying to make myself the ultimate absolute authority. And there's only one person that sits in that seat, and that's God. That's what we do. Paul wants to make that clear. The very very nature of the Christian life means that we live under the rule of King Jesus. So for us to speak out loud or for us to say that no one will be in charge of me, I'm in charge of myself, I'm in charge of my own life, that is sin. That is what we say when we, the way we've defined sin the last couple of months has been it's de in God. Saying, God, I don't need you to be the ultimate authority, I don't need you to be the ultimate power, I don't need you to be the ruling authority, I think I can do that and I think I can do it better than you. So I'll be in charge of my life. That's how that works, right? That's sin. God is the only absolute authority. Now, before you start to throw stones at me, right, Paul is not saying roll over in the face of bad government. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying never speak up when authority is abused by someone in power. He's not saying that. And again, we're going to talk about what we do with that here in a minute. But the key here for us, church, to understand this morning is this. The person in power may not be worthy. The way that they rule may not be godly. But the institution and the concept of government being under authority, those are worthy, those are godly, because they were God's idea. It's important for us to remember that. One quote that I read this week said this, Christians today need to urgently consider what it means both that God wanted his world to be governed under the rule of appropriate law and that Jesus is already installed as the supreme Lord of heaven and earth. We need to get to that place. We need to consider what that means, that Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, and we live here, right? There's this tension that we have to navigate. Jesus is already Lord, right? We know that, and we know that he is returning to rule. We know that he is coming, right? What we say, kind of the technical term for all of this is we would say the kingdom of heaven is inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and consummate his rule, right? So what we do is we live in between the already and the not yet. And the reason that we have to walk through this today is because as we live in this tension, As we live in the already and not yet, right, as we live in between the already and not yet, how we live our lives matters. Why? Because the gospel's at stake. And there is a world watching. 
There is a world seeking, there is a world searching for something real to hang on to. Our lives, church, collectively and individually, broadcast the gospel. So the way we live can either help the gospel or the way we live can either hinder the broadcast of the gospel and how we interact with and how we treat and submit to and obey our governing authorities. It matters. One of the commentaries I read this week said this, the reason Paul tackles this subject is because he realized that how Christians relate to governing authorities has a direct bearing on the spread of the gospel. That's what's at stake. And it's important for us to remember that. It's important for us to remember that. When it comes to spreading the gospel, when it comes to getting people, like we say, in the same room with Jesus so they can begin to work things out, Government and governing authorities, when we interact with those, we have two choices, right? One, we can push back. We can push back from the government, push back from governing authorities. We could all pack it up today, retreat into the woods, form a commune, and try to avoid it altogether, right? We can do that. But I'll just tell you what history would show you. If you do that, it actually puts you more on the radar of government than not, right? It's like they're watching those people, right? So that's a choice. We can push back from this. We can say, you know what? We're just going to retreat into the woods. We're going to do things the way we want to do it. We're just going to kind of bunker down, bubble up, fortify, and that's how we're going to live. Or we can engage with the government. We can engage with the world and the culture around us, but here's the key. We don't engage as citizens of this world. We engage as people that have dual citizenship. We have dual citizenship. I belong first to the kingdom of God. Jesus is my king. That's where I belong first. That's where my allegiance lies. I follow the authority of Jesus. My citizenship is in heaven. But I live here. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, in the United States of America, on planet Earth. So I have dual citizenship. My citizenship is here. It's in heaven. But it's also here. And so... You may be thinking, Brad, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know if we want to get all political here. I don't know if we want to, if we want to talk about politics today. Like, what happened to, like, separation of church and state? I came in here to get away from all that. Like, I'm bombarded by, by politics and political speech. Everywhere I go, it's on Twitter, it's on Facebook, it's on social media, it's on the news. Here's what I want us to understand, and this kind of blew my mind this week. Do you know what the word politics and political means? Do you know what it means? It comes from, it comes from this Greek word, right, politia which is a mashup of, of a noun, polis, which means city, and a verb, which means to actively get involved. So the word politics means this, being an involved citizen. Or as one author put it this week, it means this, being involved in the life of the city. That's what it means. That's what it means to be political. It means to be involved in the life of the city, to be involved in the life of your community, to be involved in the everyday life of your community. And so here's the deal. If we look at that, if we use that as our definition, my hope is we are political. My hope is that we are involved. As the church, as believers in Jesus, we cannot push back from, nor should we push back from, being actively involved in the life of our city, of our neighborhoods, of our communities, of our schools. We should be involved. Too often what happens is the church takes its ball and goes home because we don't want to play with those people. We don't want to hang out with them. We build walls and we fortify ourselves in these little Christian bubbles and in our holy huddles. And in the meantime, the city and the lives of the people in the city, they fall apart around us. Why? Because they don't have the gospel. And there's nobody there to live, in, live out an expression 
of what a heavenly kingdom citizenship looks like. The lives of the people in our city are falling apart around us because they don't have someone to be that living, breathing expression, that example, that image, that reflection of here's what the with God life looks like. Here's what it looks like to have dual citizenship, right? I belong to King Jesus. I follow him, and because of that, my relationship with everything, including myself, the people around me, my church, and my city, it looks different. So the question is, how do we do this? What does this look like? What does it look like for us to be involved in the life of our city? Paul goes on, verse 3. He says this, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. He asks the question, do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then he answers it, do what's right and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, he says, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, that his agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Think back to what Justin said last week, where Paul says, listen, do not be the one. Do not be an agent of wrath. Let God handle this. It's a good example of this. It's a good example of how we can let go of being people that want to take revenge, that want to take justice into our own hands and let God handle it. We can let an institution that God created handle that, Okay. He says, therefore, he says, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment if you don't, but also as a matter of conscience. So let's unpack this. Paul is essentially saying this, the first step in engaging the Christian life with the government and the governing authorities for the sake of spreading the gospel is this, do what's right. Pretty simple. Pretty simple, do what's right. Why? Because the one in authority is God's servant. That's what he says. And he says, they're in power for your good. And the word servant that he uses in Romans 13 literally translates minister. That's what it translates. And it means this. The word minister means this. A servant of the king or one who executes the commands of another. Servant of the king, one who executes the command or another. And according to Paul, those people, those ministers, those servants, they're here for our good. And I listened to a teaching on this because I know that can be a really hard pill to swallow. Because sometimes the things that the government and governing authorities do, they don't feel like they're for our good. I listened to a, to a, a teaching on this this week, and, and there was a great line in this teaching. And, and so I, I'm, I'm, I, it kind of blew my mind, and, and it's one that I'm hanging on to, right? It says this, that governing authorities and laws are given by God to rein in our fallenness. And they're a legitimate means of doing this. They're intended to restrain evil, given the right to judge evil, and given the freedom to punish evil. I'm like, oh, man. That makes all kinds of sense now. The way God intended and the way God set this up was it was intended to rein in our fallenness, our fallen nature, to judge evil, to punish evil, to restrain evil. Which is why Paul can say that governing, government authority and laws, they're meant to rein in our fallenness and restrain all those things. That's why he could say it's good for us. Now, I thought about this in my own life. Like, where do I find examples of just government and laws and, and things like that restraining fallenness? And the first place that I thought of for me of where my fallenness shows up the most is in traffic, right? So I've got an Adventure Christian Church sticker on the back of my Jeep, and I think I should probably take it off, right? Um, or I need to talk to someone. I, there's a lot of things I need to repent of, right? So 
I just thought about this, right? So the, where I see my fallen, where my fallenness comes out of me the most is at traffic. Now, I don't know if you got on the road this past Thursday when it was kind of freezing drizzle, right? That kind of when it was supposedly doing that somewhere. I got behind someone on the Gene Snyder driving this little Honda go-kart that refused to go faster than 35 miles an hour. And I'll just say this too, the Gene Snyder right now, if you've ever, it's like Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. It is, you take your life into your own hands when you get on the Gene Snyder. And I thought to myself, it's like, this person's refusing to go faster than 35 miles an hour. This car is tiny. I drive a pretty big Jeep. I could just run them over. And then I realized, if I do that, as much as the fallenness in me wants to do this, if I do that, I will get in trouble, right? I will go to jail. I will have murdered someone. I will have, I will have hurt someone. I can't do this. So just like the basic premise of how this is good for restraining our fallenness, like the reason that we have traffic signs and traffic lights, if it was just you go when you want at a four-way stop, can you imagine the chaos? Can you imagine what that would look like? Do what you want. If you thought, I can do whatever I want to do, it would be chaos if there were no rules, if there was nothing to restrain our fallenness. Nothing to hold back the evil that wants to work through us. And so next time, next time you get pulled over, try this. The cop comes up to the window and knocks on your door and knocks on your window and says, do you know why I pulled you over? Says, yes, officer. Thank you so much. You are standing in judgment of my sin right now. You are restraining my evil. You are, you are an instrument of the Lord. Thank you so much. Like this government and governing authority is here for my good. Just see what happens, right? He might go like, you have a warning, just go. Like, please just go, right? Or he might call someone to take you away, right? I don't know. Just, I'm just saying, try it. Try it. But here's what Paul says. He goes on in verse 6. He says, do, he, so first step is do what's right. In verse 6, he goes on to the next step. He says, this is why, and I know we're coming up on this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servant who are giving their full time to governing. Again, I'll go back to you. You may not like who's in charge. But when you pay taxes, let me just hear, let me hear me say this. You're not approving of the person in office. You're doing your part to improve the function of the office. Does that make sense? When you pay your taxes, you're not approving of the person in office. You're doing your part to improve the function of the office. Can you imagine can you imagine if you had an emergency and you called 911 and no one answered? There's nobody there to pay, no, no tax money. There's nothing there to fund first responders. You had an emergency at your house. Someone broke into your house. They're trying to hurt you and your family. You call 911 and you get voicemail. Sorry, we're closed. Can you imagine if you went to take your kid to school and there weren't teachers? And that's kind of feeling real right now. Can you imagine if you had no power, no running water, no passable roads to drive on, which again, Gene Snyder, a little iffy right now. Can you imagine if there was no court system or judicial system to make rulings on things that are unjust? See, it's not, when we pay taxes, it's not about approving of the person in the office. It's about doing our part so that things can improve. And he goes on in verse 7, he says, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. If the first step in engaging with the government and the Christian life is to do what's right, then step two is to do your part. Contribute. Contribute what you need to contribute. Contribute what is asked of you to contribute, whether it's taxes, whether it's revenue, whether it's respect, or whether it's honor. And I'm probably going to catch some heat for this, 
and I'm not pointing fingers at anyone in this room, please hear me when I say this, but generally speaking, when we think about the people in the office, when we think about honor and respect, can you imagine, what if, what if Christians in the church spent more time praying for God to speak through, act through, move through, and work through our leaders and authorities, and less time trashing them, bashing them, making fun of them, and disrespecting them? What would that look like? I think things would look different. At the very least on Twitter, things would look different, right? If we gave respect and we gave honor and we chose to pray for, not approve of, but to pray for, hey, God, this government thing was your idea. I'm praying for you to work through person that's in charge. I'm praying for you to speak through the person that's in charge. I'm praying for you to act through, to, to work on their heart for them to become more like, what, what would it look like for us to seek God on their behalf? I think things would look different. Now, if we're going to engage and be active citizens in the life of our city and our country, this is the part where I said we're going to get to this. We've got to know what happens when, when two things, right? When we cross the line, and we have to know what happens when the people in power cross the line. So let me speak to us first, okay? Where we get in trouble is when we directly associate any form of government, any specific country's government, any specific person in power, or any specific political party with the gospel of Jesus. That's where we get in trouble, when we say this party, this government, this country, this is God's party, this is God's type of government, this is God's person, God's politician, that's called Christian nationalism. And I'm just going to be honest with you, it's sinful. It is sinful to equate or connect any nation with Jesus. It's sinful. John Stott says this, it would be really unwise, be very unwise for any Christian to attempt to baptize any political theory, party, or person into Christ, assuming that they're an unmixed blessing with no contamination from the fall. We go wrong, we cross the line when we find our identity in a political party and not in Jesus. Jesus is not a Democrat. Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. That's who he is. Nothing compares to Jesus. No politician, no party, no form of government compares to Jesus. To make something or someone other than Jesus ultimate in our lives, or, let's back it up just a little bit, to make someone or something in our lives equally ultimate as Jesus is idolatry, and it is sin. We talked about this all the way back in Romans 1. Right? We suppress the truth of God, and what we do is we, when we suppress the truth of God, we open our hearts to begin to worship things other than him. And I've seen people spiral into deep despair when their candidate doesn't win or when their party doesn't win. And all I can think of is you're in despair because your hope is in something or someone other than Jesus. If you find yourself in deep despair over politics and politicians, you know, here's what you know, you're worshiping something or someone other than Jesus. That's how you know you've crossed the line. And how you get back is to repent. And Jesus says at any point in time, right, we can change the direction of our lives. That's what it means to repent. I'm going to change the direction. I'm going to turn away from worshiping that so that I can begin to move towards worshiping him. 
And what it looks like to repent in that moment is just to say, Jesus, my hope is in you and you alone and not in any form of government, party, or politician. I mean, even Paul, this is not my notes, but like, even Paul, he didn't freak out over what was going on. He's writing this letter to a church in Rome, and the guy who was Caesar, who was in charge of the Roman Empire at this point in time, was a guy named Nero. If you know anything about church history, Nero went crazy and decided to make Christians his number one target. Nero would crucify Christians and light their bodies on fire to light the streets of Rome at night. Paul's going, his, his, he's not panicking. He's not freaking out about Nero being in charge of the Roman Empire because he knows the king of the universe is Jesus. Caesar ain't got nothing on Jesus. I mean, Nero's going to be the one that's going to cut Paul's head off not, not much further after this. Paul will lose his life at the hands of this man. And Paul's kind of reaction to Caesar wanting to be all-powerful is, eh, you're no big deal. I'm not going to put my stuff, I'm not going to be afraid of you. I'm not going to be afraid of you. I'm not going to worship you because my king is Jesus. So what do we do then, right? That's, that's us. What do we do then when the government or those in power cross the line? What do we do in that moment? How do we know when that happens? Tim Chaddock says this. He says, when the government, here's how we know when the government crosses the line. When the government commands what God forbids or when the government forbids what God's, God commands, we must part ways with them and obey God rather than people. That's the line. If the government says today, if you get an email from the government and they say, today, in order to be a citizen of Louisville, Kentucky, you have to murder 10 people. The answer is, no, we're not going to do that, right? What they've done is they've commanded something that God forbids. God says, don't murder, don't take life. If the government says, you can't, you're no longer allowed to read the Bible, we would say, we're going to still read the Bible. We're not going to stop reading the Bible. They've tried to forbid something that God commands. God wants us, he commands us to be in his word. But that's the filter, church. That's the filter of when we push back. Here's what's not the filter. It's not your feelings. It's not your personal sense of justice or injustice. It's not what you think about current events or issues. It all comes back to what God commands or what God, forg God forbids. So here's the deal. If it's not a kingdom issue, then don't make it one. If it's not a kingdom issue, then don't make it one. Because here's the deal. If it's not a kingdom issue, it's your issue, and you need to reconcile all of that with everything that we've just unpacked about submitting to these authorities. But if God commands it or if God forbids it, then it's a kingdom issue, and no matter what, we side with him. No matter what. And there's a number of examples of this in the Bible when people do this. I mean, you look at Daniel. They told him to stop praying. I'm not going to stop praying. All right, we're going to throw you in a furnace. Go for it. One of the ones that I love the most, though, comes in Acts 5, right? So Peter and the apostles, they've been preaching about Jesus. They've been preaching the gospel. And, and the Pharisees, right, the, the religious leaders, the religious rulers, they hear him preaching about the gospel. Not much after, right? Not, not, that, fa that, not, not that much, like 40-ish days, right, after these people murdered Jesus for saying what they're saying. So they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching about Jesus in the same city under this, with the same rulers, the same religious people around them. They're talking about Jesus. 
And they bring him in and say, you got to stop talking about Jesus. You cannot keep talking about Jesus. Stop talking about Jesus. You're no longer allowed to preach this gospel of Jesus. And in Acts 5.29, here's what Peter says. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. We will not stop. And what happens? In the end, they were beaten and they were flogged. And I love this in verse 41 and 42 of chapter 5. It says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing after being beaten and flogged because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. And it goes on. It says, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped preaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They never stopped. I listened to a story this week about a German pastor in World War II. As the, Nazi, as the Nazi regime took over Germany, they told pastors in churches to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus. And this German pastor would not stop preaching the gospel of Jesus. And so he was captured, and he was taken, and he was thrown in prison. And while he was in prison, one of his church members came to visit him. And he's in this prison cell. And through the bars, this church member, this church attender says, Pastor, why are you doing this? Why are you in here? And the pastor through the bars replies back to this church member, why are you not? We'll never stop. We will never stop proclaiming the gospel of Jesus no matter what. When we part ways with man's authority in order to stand up and stand on God's authority, here's what you can expect, church. Expect opposition. It's going to cost you something. It cost Jesus his life. It cost most of the apostles their lives. It cost Paul his life. And you know what? It might cost us hours at some point. There are people on this planet right now that have to meet in caves to talk about Jesus because someone will come in and kill them. It might cost you your friends. It might cost you your job. It might cost you power or influence or status. But bottom line, when we stand up for God's authority, when we stand on God's authority, and we part ways with man's authority, expect that it will cost you something. God does not expect us to be silent or to stand still when the government and governing authorities command things that he forbids or forbid things that he commands. He does not want us to stay silent or stay still when governments adapt and adopt evil as opposed to what he wants. We have to be, church, we must be a voice for the voiceless. We have to strive and seek justice for those who have suffered injustice. We have to, like Jesus, be willing to get in between people that are oppressed and their oppressors and say, if you want to get to them, you got to go through me. But we have to remember this, and it's so critical. If you miss, if you tuned out for everything, please get this, right? It's so critical to remember this. In all things and how we live, the gospel's at stake. So when you speak out, you speak like Jesus with grace and truth. When you act, you act like Jesus in love. Church, we are not the judge. We are not the judge. That's God's job. That's God's seat. He'll take care of that when the time comes. We are meant, we, are, we exist to image and reflect the character and nature of God that says this. No one is too broken. No one is too messy. No one is a lost cause. And no one is beyond God's ability to restore and redeem. But, as Tim Keller says, the most hateful thing that we can do to a person is allow them to believe that the sin in their life is okay. 
but how we do this matters. How we do this matters. Jesus never let anyone believe that their sin was okay. Jesus never gave anyone a pass on sin, but the way Jesus engaged it was with grace and truth and love. Now, here's where the tension gets real. All right, no more hypotheticals. Here's the real deal, church. And again, I know that some of you may walk out of here today and never walk back in the doors, and I'm, I'm, I hope you come back. But I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta share truth. The Bible tells us that God is the one that defines what marriage is, not the U.S. Supreme Court, right? But standing up for and standing on the sanctity and covenant of marriage as God defines it between a man and a woman, it does not also give us permission to hate or condemn people who are divorced or people who are same-sex attracted. We do not hate, and we do not condemn, and we do not throw stones at them. Those two things can coexist. We can love those people, but we can also say, this is what God says. This is what's true. This is what's right. This is what we affirm. We do not affirm in this church flippant divorce or LGBTQ lifestyles, but we also don't throw stones at people. The Bible tells us. The God is the one who gives life and takes life. State laws don't change that. Standing up for the unborn and opposing abortion when it's simply used as a means of birth control does not also give us permission to hate and condemn people that have had an abortion. The Bible tells us that it's God the one, God's the one who defines gender, and he defines it like this. There are two genders, male and female. That's it. But standing up for and standing on the truth of how God defines our gender and how God defines our sexuality does not also give us permission to hate and condemn people who are wrestling with their identity in either. My hope is that this church would be a safe place for people to come in. But understand this. We are not going to shy away from what is true and what is real, no matter what the world says. We won't. Church, we can be opposed, and we should be. We should be opposed to racism. But you can be opposed to racism and be for law enforcement at the same time. You can be for, you can be opposed to systematic and systemic racism. And you can be for law enforcement at the same time. Those two things can coexist. Here's what I'm telling you, church. Don't put words in God's mouth or try to take actions on his behalf. God saves, God redeems, God restores, not you, not me. Jesus died as much for people who are struggling with their sexuality, who are going through divorce. He, he, he died as much for the mom who is deciding whether or not she's going to give up her baby. He died just as much for them as he did for you. He's the one that gets to have the final judgment. That's his. That's not mine. It's not yours. In the meantime, what we are commissioned and empowered to do is to seek after, pursue, and boldly share the truth and radically love people who are lost just like Jesus. Use your voice, church. But what comes out of your mouth must be grace and truth. Use your actions. But when you act, it has to be in love. Because the gospel's at stake. 
Paul, he closes this chapter with just kind of the output of what this looks like. He says this, let no debt, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command may be there are summed up in this one command. Get this, love your neighbor as yourself. Which means no matter what political party they are, no matter what affiliation they are, whoever they are, what nationality they are, what religion they are, you love your neighbor as you would love yourself. And I love this. He says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding that in the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Church, it's time for us as a body to wake up, to get involved in the life of our city. If the Christians in Louisville, Kentucky would get involved in the life of our city, there would be no person that would would experience hunger or homelessness. None. If the, if the church would get involved in the life of our city, there would be no reason for abortion because there would be opportunities for every child to be fostered and adopted. Every child would have a home. Every child would have a family. We can't sit here and say, well, we're against this and then not do anything about it. It doesn't work that way. You have to get involved. We have to wake up, like Paul says. Why? Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, he says. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light that is a visible expression, a living, breathing expression of the gospel, of the character and nature of God in us. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus so that when people see you, they see him. Be covered in Jesus. So when they look at your life, they see him. What's different about you? Let me tell you about my friend Jesus. Let me tell you about the Lord and Savior of my life, Jesus. He says, don't even think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Why? Because you have dual citizenship. You don't belong here. You live here. You belong there. Church, that's it. I'm done, right? It's It's time for us to wake up. We are, like we said, we are empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve one another, to serve those around us. We gotta get in the game, and that means in here and out there. If you have an opportunity to sit on a school board or to sit on a PTA, do it, join it. Bring Jesus, bring the gospel to the PTA at your school. If you have the opportunity to go to or or to to work on, to to be a part of city councils or, or city council meetings, go, speak the gospel. If you want to run for government, run for office. Because the gospel is at stake. Bring the gospel. If you want to open up your home to adopt a child or foster a child, do that. We can do that collectively as a church. We can do that individually. If you see somebody that's hungry, feed them. If you have the ability to support community ministries like we do with JAM, do that. That's all they do is feed people. They help pay their bills. If you have the opportunity to help a neighbor, help a neighbor. It's time for us to get in the game, church. Like I said a couple weeks ago, I'm done playing church. And this is what it looks like. I'm done playing church, but here's what I'm not. It's time for the church to play. 
It's time for us to get in the game. It's time for us to play ball. Show the world what it looks like to be radically loved by, forgiven, chosen, called, redeemed, restored by the king of the universe whose name is Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for us, and and this morning, if you need prayer, I'm going to be up front over here. Um, Some of our elders will be up here as well. Um, Justin and some of our staff will be in the back. If you need prayer this morning, we would love to pray for you. That's what we're here for. If you would like to make a decision for Jesus, would love for you to make a decision for Jesus. If you, if you want to talk about what it means to live this with God life, to step into this with God life, it doesn't matter what you walked into this here this morning wrestling with. Today could be the first day of your new life. I would love to chat with you about that. If you want to, if you want to be a part of this church family, I would love to chat with you about that. But this is your time. So our elders, and I think some of our elders' wives maybe even will be available. So ladies, if you want to pray with someone, there's someone for you to pray with as well. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to worship together. And in that time, if you want to, if you want to pray, if you want to talk about what it means to accept Jesus, if you want to be a part of this church, this is a good time to do that. So let's pray. Jesus, this morning, we thank you for your boldness to live a life and sacrifice for us, to live a life that knew you knew it was going to cost me to point to my father, to stand on the truth of my father. It's going to cost me everything. But that we, your kids, are worth it. So Jesus, today, may we reconcile these issues, the kingdom issues. May we be the people who do what's right and do our part because the gospel's at stake. But may we also be people who are willing to be bold, to speak the truth, to not allow sin to grow or flourish, but to speak the truth with grace and love. Father, we love you. Shame we pray.